Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. Hey, would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 21. We also, this last week on Thursday, moved in our new, some new pastors on staff, Pastor Stanley and Lydia Cubas, and they are now moved into this beautiful state, or beautiful state of Ohio, wonderful city of Cincinnati. Pam took care of them. We got a gift basket to them. They've got all their Cincinnati Reds gear already. They have converted. They don't root for New York anymore. They're Cincinnati Reds fans. They would be with us this morning, but on Friday, everyone in their family came down with a fever. So they are sick at home. Their very first Sunday here in in all four or six. So would you be praying for Pastor Stanley and Lydia and their two wonderful kids and make sure next week that you come and find them and welcome them to the family. It is exciting what God is doing. Wow. (laughs) It is exciting what God is doing at New Heights Church. Come on. There we go, a little better. Man, you guys should have had your coffee. Well, we're going to continue in our study of the book of 1 Peter. And uh, we're going to be talking about the job and the boss. Amen. You guys remember your first job? Have you guys worked before? (laughs) I got my first job at really 15 years old. I started working for my uncle who owned a moving company. And that was my first job, and that was brutal work for a 15-year-old moving pianos and couches, but my uncle was the only one who would hire me. My second job, I was hired at a Safeway Grocery Store. If you're from the West Coast, you know what Safeway is. It has the best, the best donuts in all of the world. It's got the maple bars that are just to die for. Incredible donuts. Am I wrong, Pastor Enos? greatest donuts in the world. And so I got a job at Safeway. I was, I was the bagger. I'd bag groceries, go collect carts. But then I got promoted. Well, actually I was being demoted, but I looked at it as a promotion. Apparently I wasn't bagging groceries well enough. And so they said, we're going to use you to clean the, the meat shop and the, the bakery. And so it ended up being this incredible job for me because at the end of my day of training, we, we, he said, well, you got to go get the donuts and throw them away. And I said, what? He goes, well, or you can donate them. You can bring them to a charity. I said, can there be a third option? He goes, what? Can I have them? He goes, sure. He goes, we got to get rid of all the donuts by the, the next day because we want all of our donuts to be fresh. So I literally went and got a big old garbage bag. Yes, a garbage bag, a big, white, hefty garbage bag. And I just loaded up 
all the donuts. I was the most popular kid at Northwest Christian High School. It was like Santa Claus. I'd have that bag over my shoulder. I'd walk in and everybody loved me. Probably gained 30 pounds working at Safeway, but it was my dream job. I told my dad, I don't, I don't want to go to college, man. He could just, Safeway could pay me in donuts and I would be happy. I was just so happy to clean up that bakery. The meat shop, not as much, but the donut shop, man, Maple bars every single morning my junior year and senior year in high school. It was the best. Man, I want a donut. It's been seven weeks since I've had a donut. Seven weeks since I've had a donut. Stay strong. I'm trying. So we're in in 1 Peter right now. And we're going to talk about the boss and the job. In 1 Peter 5.12, I know we're jumping the gun, but Peter tells us why he wrote this epistle. It says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Here it is. Are you ready? Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Peter is writing to stand firm in God's grace, and he's writing to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith, opposed for their faith and their Christianity, and he wants them to be strong and stand firm in their faith. Can you think of a better message for Americans today? Beginning in chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 10, he tells them to stand in their salvation. They need to celebrate and be thankful for what Christ has done for them. They're saved from a life of sin. That's how he starts the letter. But Peter is no dummy. And he understands that sometimes this newfound freedom in Jesus Christ can be a danger. It can be abused, and they can start to think they're free in Jesus so they don't have to obey human government. They're free in Christ, so they don't have to submit to their boss. And so Peter's addressing all of it. Have you guys ever given someone a little freedom only to have that person abuse it? When I was, when we were first married and our kids were real small, I would babysit. Well, let me change that. Mom and dads don't babysit. I would watch my kids when... When Liz was, was out, I remember when Asher was real small, he would get into everything. And so Liz one day said, hey, I'm going to go out, have coffee with my mom. Can you watch Allie and Asher? I said, yeah, Liz, I can, no problem. And Liz, Liz was, I don't want to call her real strict, but she had particular rules for the kids. They could only play in, in the play area. And we had one room just designated to them. And there were certain cabinets that they couldn't get into. And she was such a good mom that she, we never even had to baby-proof our cabinets because if, if mom said don't go in there, they listened to mom, they didn't go in there. And so she said, are you going to be okay? I said, yeah, Liz, I'll be fine. And, and she left. And I told the kids, I sat them down. They were real small, two years old, and I think four years old at the time. And I said, guys, I'm going to give you some freedom today. The house is your playpen. <laughs> but you got you to gotta follow all the rules that mom told you. But I'm going to let you just roam around and do whatever you want as long as you follow mom's rules. Both of them nodded their head. I learned a lesson that day because after just two minutes, and I was on the phone as a missionary raising support, so I was calling pastor after pastor after pastor and, and trying to raise support, and I remember at one point I was on the phone in, with my home church in Washington State, 
and I was talking to the lead pastor's admin, and all of a sudden I turned around and Asher was running, had no clothes on, and he was covered in flour. So they had gotten into mom's cabinets, and, and I said to the lady on the phone, I said, oh, my word, I'm babysitting the kids today. And, and she literally corrected me and said, Mr. Hansen, it's not babysitting when they're your own children. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, by the time I got to Asher, he had abused the freedom that I had given him. So he was covered in flour, and he had decided to paint a beautiful mural on the wall in the living room with permanent marker. That's Dad's fault again for, for putting Sharpie markers in the, in the drawer that I just told him he could have free reign. And I learned a real quick lesson that day. Sometimes freedom gets abused, right? I quoted William Barclay a few weeks ago. He said, Christian freedom does not mean being free to do as we like. It means being free to do as we ought. Verse 13, Peter told, told us to subject ourselves to every human institution. So he's going to make sure that believers know just because you're free in Christ doesn't mean you're free to do anything you want. It means you're free to do what you should do. And so last week, we looked at that. We looked at the doctrine of submission to government and authority. He talks about the, the truth that as believers, we're to live an honorable life because an unbelieving world is watching us. Okay, verse 12, it said, keep your conduct amongst, among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That was Peter introducing the idea of submission to live a good and beautiful godly life. And, and the motivation behind this is that these unbelievers who are attacking you will be won over by Jesus. Isn't that something? That was Peter's heart. Here these people are being persecuted and Peter says you ought to be thinking about them. And that should change the way that you conduct your life. He says one day they might just get saved and the reason will be because they worked with these Christians and these Christians were different. This is why I say that everyone is a missionary. I know missionaries don't like to hear that statement, but it's okay. I was a missionary for 10 years. I went and served overseas for 10 years of my life, and even as a missionary, I preached that message. When Pastor Brad Rosenberg allowed me to come and share with you, I stood right here and said, the only difference between me and you is geography. Everyone is called to be a missionary. So it's not just something I'm saying as a pastor. I have always said it all along. In the Christian life, everything we do is a sacred duty. There's a purpose behind everything that we do. Every job that I have ever had, I was a missionary. From bagging groceries and collecting grocery carts to cleaning up the donut shop and eating donuts to leading tours in Alaska, I was a missionary. Did you know that most Americans will spend over 90,000 hours in the workforce over the course of their life? 90,000 hours, which means you essentially spend half of your, your life on the job. It's an opportunity to make an impact. And think about it. Think about all that time, your job, your career. It's a pulpit. It's a stage to make Jesus known. That's why, that's why God said in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your life is a sermon. My father, who was a pastor, would always say the best years of his ministry were actually when he was a police officer. 
My dad was a pastor and a missionary and a Bible college professor. And to the day he died, he would always say the most productive ministry of his life was when he was a police officer. He led more people to Jesus as a police officer than he did as a pastor. It's amazing to think about. I think it has something to do with with people being uh, handcuffed in the back of a uh, police car. You know, it's just he's got an audience, I guess. But he would always say that. He would always look back at his life and said, man, some of the most productive uh, ministry that I've ever experienced was when I was a police officer. God plants you in places to be a light in dark places. I know it's difficult to be a Christian in our secular society, but God puts us where we are to be witnesses. Not to demand our rights, but to give up our rights for the sake of others and the glory of God to win them to Jesus Christ. I understand the irony of this is that I'm preaching this text or this message on the 4th of July weekend. I told my wife, wow, I didn't plan this. This was horrible timing, I said. Here we're celebrating our rights. We're celebrating our freedom. And I've got to preach a message where I'm telling the congregation to give up their rights. And Liz looked at me and said, well, isn't that amazing timing? Isn't God amazing? Because, Justin, if we didn't live in America, we wouldn't even have rights to give up. You see, Peter's saying the fact that when Christians give up their rights, when they lay down their own rights, it's a powerful testimony to Jesus Christ. And most people living in the world today don't even have that option. They can't give up their rights because they have no rights. We today live in one of the greatest nations. We live in the land of the free and the land of the brave. People have sacrificed their life so you and I can have the freedom that we experience today. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And it's because of the brave that we have this amazing opportunity to make Jesus known. So here Peter is about to tell us as Christians, we're to deny our rights for the sake of the gospel. More important is Jesus is glorified, people one to Christ, than for us to get our way on the job. The most important thing is not that we get the promotion we deserve or that we're treated fairly. The bigger picture here is Jesus is seen in our life. The best way to win the loss is to be a good witness and more important than us getting our rights, not about us, about Jesus. That's what this text is about today. A tough, hard pill to swallow. So let's just bottom line this. Are you ready? None of us as Christians really have a secular job. We just don't. What we have is a mission field. A massive mission field. For many of us, the greatest mission field we'll ever have. Pastor Skip Heidzik once shared a stat that 50% of Christians have never heard a sermon on work. Never heard a sermon on work. Never heard a sermon addressed to somebody's career. I've got to admit, I'm one of those statistics. I told Liz, growing up, I've never heard a sermon about work, about your job, unless it's about going and making disciples in, in the sense of ministry. I've never heard a preacher address this. I'm one of those statistics. Here's what's even crazier. In that study, 70% have never had a theology of work or a vocation. Folks, this is why we preach the Bible, because all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I have stopped so many times in, in preparing this sermon this last week and thought to myself, man, if I could have just grasped this idea as an 18-year-old, I would do life so different. 
even in ministry, I have complained so many times about the job that I had and was thinking ahead, and I was missing this whole concept that God had me there for that time, that season, and for a purpose. I want to look in these verses today in our text this morning, and I want to draw out two challenges for you. That's it, just two. Two challenges for you to apply your life concerning your job. Here it is, the first challenge. Write this down. Be a good worker. <laughs> it's pretty basic, isn't it? Be a good worker. We're going to look at verse 18 through 19, but this is essentially what Paul is saying. Be a good, solid, hard worker. Look with me at verse 18. It says, servants. Some of your translations say slaves. And we're going to get to this in a minute. Be subject to your masters. Another word we're going we're to get to in a minute. With all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Let's, let's pray real quick before we get into this. Father God, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you that your word has the ability to transform our hearts and our minds. It's you speaking directly to us. And so today, would you be with me as I deliver your word? Would you take me out of it? And would you speak directly to the hearts of those that are here today and joining us online? God, again, our goal is to hear from you and to experience life transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now before we get too deep, I've got to go over something because there's some words here we need to cover. Peter wrote this to a particular group of people and most of those people were slaves. Okay, the word, the word for servant or slave, it's, it's not the typical word for, for slave. The typical word for a servant or a slave in the ancient Greek is the word doulos. In fact, Paul, who had many titles, he could have gone by many titles. His favorite title to go by was doulos. He was a slave of God, and that's what he preferred to be called over all the other titles that he had earned in his life. It was something he was proud of. But doulos is not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is okatai, which means a household slave. Now, household slaves were uh, a diverse group of people in, in ancient biblical times. Some were really educated, some even being teachers themselves. And they could have been managers of an estate. They could have been doctors. They could have been lawyers. It was just a wide variety. It was people from all over with all kinds of different backgrounds. The word master in our text simply describes somebody who has unlimited and absolute authority over another person. Now, this should make us kind of sick when we see these words in the Bible. It, could, it should turn our stomach, right? Bible and the issue of slavery. Why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Here's what you need to know as we dig into this passage. In, in these days, slavery was a fact of life. Okay? You've you got to understand the Bible and its historical setting. And whenever you read the Bible and you plan on interpreting it, ter, interpreting it you, you have to bridge a history and a time gap. It was written a long time ago, and you have, you have to bridge a cultural gap. You have to take what was culturally happening and transpose it into our culture today. Even grammatically speaking, the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew, and we've got to translate it into English. And so there's a theological gap that we have to 
cross when we're interpreting scripture. There's a whole lot that's involved when you take a passage and you're asking yourself, what does this mean? What did it mean to the original audience and what does it mean to me today? God's word never changes. The truth still applies. There's a message that God wants to speak to us. But something that you need to understand is that in this, these days, slavery was a part of the fabric of life. Now, I told you, when you see words like this in the Bible, your, tum- your stomach, I'm having a hard time today, your stomach should turn a little bit. You should be uncomfortable with these words. It's a good thing for us to be offended at depictions of slavery, even in the Bible. We ought to be troubled by these things, and we shouldn't just try to explain them away. We need to go over this. We need to talk about it. We need to discuss this. So there's some concepts to keep in mind, and I'm indebted to Pastor J.D. Greer for this. He wrote an article, and I'm going to use his article. Here's what he says. There's a big difference between description and prescription. All right? In other words, just because the Bible talks about it doesn't mean the Bible approves it. Actually, it's quite the opposite. When Abraham took Hagar as a sex slave, the results were disastrous. It was a horrible, terrible thing. Even... Even in the Bible, when you, you see other things, we'll talk about it in just a little minute, you'll see that they always would give, give things or bless the, the first son. And you see all throughout the Bible, there were some des- disastrous events that occurred or results that occurred from even that practice in, in ancient time. He talks about progressive revelation. Uh, revelation, man, I am struggling today. These are big words. <laughs> the recognition that Scripture sometimes left deficient systems in place while planting the seeds into the systems of its undoing. For example, we talked about earlier, the practice where the oldest son gets all the inheritance and the younger son got the shaft. All right? Clearly practiced all throughout the Old Testament. Liam, whenever we talk about this in our devotions, Liam says, that's unfair. It is unfair, Liam. But in Genesis, God always chose the younger because God suddenly overturned the system. And many, many scholars today will see something similar happening throughout the Bible with slavery. So when we look to slavery in the Bible, there are three things that we need to keep in mind. Number one, in the New Testament, the bondservant practice of the first century is nothing like what we think of when we say slave. Example, where you take someone captive and you force them into labor. That kind of slavery is explicitly condemned in the Bible. In fact, it says anyone who kidnaps another and sells him must be put to death. That's Exodus 21, 16. Go ahead and look at it. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, Paul puts slave traders in the same category as those who will kill their parents, adulterers, perjurers, and perverts. So that can't be the kind of servant that Onesimus was in the book of Philemon. This was more like what we think of as an indentured servanthood. It was a part of the economic system in Rome. If someone became extremely poor, consumed with debt, the only thing left for them to do was to sell their labor. So in an agreement for paying off debts and the promise of provision, they would sell themselves to a wealthy person. The Roman Empire had 60 million people who were slaves. 60 million. Half of the Roman Empire were slaves. And to be fair, some masters were really good masters. They loved their servants. They were like family to them. They treated them like family members. But others weren't. 
Others were cruel. They were harsh. And the slave had absolutely no rights. He had very little protection. And as a slave, he was considered a non-person. Remember, just because it was different from the slavery that you and I know in our history, in our nation, it still wasn't the right thing to do. It still wasn't God's plan. Nobody should ever be property of somebody else. The Roman citizen looked at a slave as simply a piece of property. Do you realize that? If you were a slave and you ran away and you got caught, they would brand the flesh of your forehead once you came back with a big F. Not for you getting an F on the test, but because you were a fugitive. That was a runaway slave, a fugitive. And he would be ill-treated the rest of his life. In fact, they could even put to death without any kind of trial whatsoever. That's how little rights they had in that culture. Number two, the New Testament subverts the entire premise of any form of slavery. So to say that the Bible promotes slavery is absolutely ludicrous and ridiculous. The entire New Testament ethic can be summarized as this. Are you ready? Do to others as you would have them do to you and love your neighbor as yourself. It calls us to treat one another as brothers and sisters. And it tells us that in Christ there is neither slave nor free. That new view of humanity would ultimately undo any form of slavery. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. One race, that's humanity. One class, that's sinners. One hope, that's Jesus. One future, that's the resurrection. One fortune, that's heaven with Jesus forever. Slavery goes against the very grain of the New Testament idea of redemption. Redemption literally means to set somebody free by paying a price. Redemption is to set a slave and captured free by paying their redemption price. Every year the Jews celebrate Passover, right? They still do it to this day. They celebrate their redemption. They were once slaves, Egyptian slaves under Pharaoh, but they were set free. And to this day, they'll celebrate Passover. Number three, rather than assuming or issuing, sorry, rather than issuing a political manifesto, God planted seeds which undid the current order. Okay? So if God had just said, look, this system's wrong, get rid of it now, many of Jesus' followers probably would have focused exclusively on political action. And there's a time to work politically, trust me. But God had a different way of going about his agenda here on earth. He was transforming the world from within, and the place he started was the church. Eventually, this new vision of humanity transformed the whole society, but it started in the church, and it started in the hearts of the believers. In fact, if you go today to the Museum of the Bible, you will see what's called the Slave Bible. This is really telling. If you look at that Slave Bible, you're going to see that the slave owners had cut out large sections of the Old and the New Testament, and they did that because th those were parts of the Bible that may just encourage the slave for their freedom. So they would literally cut that part of the Bible out so the slave couldn't read that. Because this Bible, this Word of God is all about freedom. We are all created equal in the sight of God. That's what God's Word teaches. Amen? So the Bible does not condone slavery, but what the Bible does instead is seek to regulate it, modify it, so to eventually destroy it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson says the best work on slavery is by an African-American scholar named Thomas Sowell. 
I think I'm saying his name right. He wrote this massive work on this. And he points out that slavery was universal. In fact, the terrible European slave trade trafficked 11 million Africans. But twice that many were bought and sold on the Arabian Peninsula during that same time period. He says almost every slave sold in the European slave trade were enslaved and sold to them by other Africans. So in other words, slavery was this universal problem. And here's what he said, and I quote, although slavery was a worldwide institution for thousands of years, nowhere in the world was slavery a controversial issue prior to the 18th century. People of every race and color were enslaved and enslaved others. White people were still being bought and sold as slaves in the Ottoman Empire decades after the American, African Americans were freed. Everyone hated the idea of being a slave, but few had any qualms about enslaving others. Slavery was just not an issue, not even among intellectuals, much less among political leaders until the 18th century. And then it was an issue only in Western civilization. Among those who turned against slavery in the 18th century were George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and other American leaders. He says you could research all of the 18th century Africa or Asia or the Middle East without finding any comparable rejection of slavery there. Why, he asks. Why? Because slavery was universal. So what stopped slavery in the West? And his answer, and this is powerful, listen, undeniably the great awakening. The preaching and the teaching of God's word by men like John Wesley and the reforms of Christian statesmen like William Wilberforce. Did you hear me? Do you want to know what turned around an evil like that? Is there were men and women who knew this Bible and preached it fearlessly. And once that word of God got planted in the hearts of men, things began to change. Do you want to know why we preach God's gospel? Do you want to know why we preach verse by verse through the Bible? Because this is the only thing that's going to bring real reform. This world is desperate for change, and there's only one thing that's going to do it. We're going to keep preaching God's word. The gospel plants seeds that ultimately undid the broken systems of this world. That's powerful. We've got a lot of broken systems that still need to be torn down, don't we? We need to continue to preach God. And I, I get it. Christians have been hypocritical all throughout history. I, I know that. When they, but when they really reckoned with the gospel, like they did in the Great Awakening, it brought the entire system of slavery down on its head. And we still have work to do when it comes to this. There are still slaves in today's world. And we need to keep preaching God's word. I told you in England, William Wilberforce, he's, he was an incredible example along with his friend John Newton. You guys know John Newton because he wrote the song Amazing Grace. Incredible movie. I encourage you to go see it if you ha haven't. So New Testament principles that would say submit to your harsh employer or your master also gave enough information and inspiration that when a person adopted the Christian message, eventually it permeated his culture. You see, what happens is that the word of God changes man's heart. And when a man's heart is changed, culture changes around them. Go home this week and read the book of Philemon. It was a 
It was a letter written to a slave owner who had a slave by the name of Onesimus who ran away, he got lost or tried to get lost in the big city of Rome. The problem was he listened to some guy by the name of Paul preaching. He gives his life to Jesus. And one day when Paul was talking with an Onesimus, he discovered that Onesimus was a runaway slave. And Paul happened to know Philemon who was the master of this, of this slave. And he writes a letter to Philemon and he tells him to return. He says, you go home and you read that letter because this is how Christianity changed the slave trade. So back to the main charge. He says, be a good worker. If a, if a servant or if a, if a slave was to submit to their master, even a harsh master, how much more should we as employees today submit to our employers in our workplace? As a Christian, you have a mission of submission. You like that? Is that creative for you? As a believer of Jesus Christ, you've got a mission of submission. And here's why. So you can win others to Jesus in the workplace. Go back to our text. It says to, to be subject to your masters. In the Greek, it's actually submit yourself. Voluntarily make a decision. You voluntarily choose. If you are a believer today, that means on, well, it's 4th of July. On Tuesday, you go into work and you say, I will submit to my boss and I will seek to do it with a right attitude as unto the Lord. Hmm? Don't be the kind of worker who's always, always has a negative disposition. Don't be the kind of worker who's a pain to your boss. Don't be the kind of worker who's disrespectful to your boss. Be a kind of worker that, that always, always puts Jesus up on the stage for everyone to see. The second command here in this first command, really, so the second part of the first command, this is where it gets really hard. Because you're going to notice as we go through verse 18 down in the words that follow that not every boss is good and not every boss is gentle. And he says, be subject to your masters with all respect. Circle that in your Bible, by the way. It's a Greek word that means with total fear. Not of the boss, but whenever Peter uses this word in this letter, he's always referring to the fear of the Lord. So he's saying, treat them with all respect and submission, not because of them, but because of God. Do it for God. Some even rendered this a consciousness of God. You want to know what's going to make you a good worker? Having a God focus. Realizing I'm not working for my boss. I'm working for God. And it's to him that I'm going to give an account. That's going to make you a good worker. You submit out of reverence for the Lord, not man. I'm not telling you you have to revere your boss. I'm not telling you you even have to like your boss. But I'm saying you're going to submit to him because you love God and you're doing it as unto the Lord. Two types of bosses here, good and gentle. Thank God for those, right? But also to the unjust. Unjust in the Greek is the word scolios. Ever heard of scoliosis? Twisted spine? Well, the Greek word for unjust is, is bent or crooked or awkward to deal with. Man, some of you are saying right now, that's my boss. None of my staff is saying that. Some of you are thinking, wow, my boss is in the Bible. Look at that. You got a boss like that, it makes going to work every day a nightmare. Right? And some of you will immediately say, we should fight back. Fight the system. We got a crooked boss. He's evil. He's terrible. He's horrible. 
Let's buck the system. You guys remember King David in the Old Testament, little shepherd boy who God promoted to be the king of Israel? When he was anointed to be the king, there was another king. His name was Saul. Saul was a terrible person to work for, to serve, right? In fact, he struggled with such jealousy, and he was, had all these different personalities. One day he would love King David. One moment he would love King David. The next moment he would hurl a, a, a spear at him, try to take his life. He hunted David down like an animal. David was hiding in caves because of this evil king. But you remember David, who was so mistreated, a man whose life was continually threatened, not because of any crime that he had committed, just because of a complete injustice, because of a, a failure on leadership's part. And he was pursued by a, a wicked man who occupied a throne in which he didn't deserve to occupy. David was a man who deserved to occupy that throne. He should have been the leader. And he was a man for a year and a half, a fugitive in the wilderness who had the right to be king of the nation, but here is a man who will not rebel, who will not take things into his own hands, who waits patiently for the Lord to work, who says, Lord, the Lord will avenge me, the Lord will take care of Saul. David over and over said, I'm not going to take things into my own hands. I'm going to respect his position. I will respect his authority. I will bow my knee to him. I will not rebel. What a model. By the way, they... King David is known as a man after God's own heart. Talk about rights, though. He had the greatest right of all to be king. We fight so much sometimes for our rights, we forget the big picture. It's our fallenness that makes us want to fight back. It makes us want to demand our rights, to strike against authorities, to protest, to complain, to be insubordinate, to be unsubmissive. But the Bible is clear that's sin. And the proper response would be the response of David, the response of simply committing yourself to God and for the care of God. That's the proper response. And so Peter's building on that same truth. Peter's saying it doesn't matter what kind of person your boss is. What matters is the kind of person that God wants you to be. God wants you to be a certain kind of person. Listen to me. Life is going to be full of both good and bad. And you need to use both the good and the bad to witness, not just the good, the bad too. In your lifetime, you're going to have some good bosses. You're going to have some bad bosses. You're going to have great jobs and you're going to have terrible jobs, jobs that you absolutely hate. No matter what your job is today, be thankful that you at least have one. Amen? You have employment. You have a job. You get compensated for it. But it's not just employment, it's a mission. And that's what Peter is trying to say here. You need to understand that God puts you there. If you can do that, it's going to elevate your position and it's going to change your attitude. It's going to change the way that you view your job. Pastor Skip Heidzik shared this. Harvard conducted a study that when people get hired, 85% of the time they get hired for their attitude. Not their smarts. They get hired for their attitude. Only 15% of the time people get hired because they're really smart and they know their facts and they know their figures. Only 15% of the time. 85% of the time, it's attitude. Pastor Skip said that for a Christian, they need to have an attitude of gratitude. He's so good with words. 
He goes on to say that gratitude is the attitude, listen, that sets the altitude for living and for working. So a worker with the right attitude is going to work hard. They're going to show up on time. They're going to do what's asked. They're going to go the extra mile. That's what Christian workers should be. You guys should always be talked hot, spoken well of by your boss, at least in terms of getting the job done. They might, they might talk bad about you in the sense that they don't like you and they might tease you, they might ridicule you, but when it comes to your job performance, a boss should always be able to say, well, they get the job done. They do what's asked. I remember when I studied at Central Bible College, I got a job in Alaska working for Holland America, and it was an incredible opportunity because we would make about $20,000 in the summer. It, September was always the most depressing month for me because I'd have to come back after working so hard, saving all that money, and I'd have to write out a check to Central Bible College for my education. Man, education shouldn't cost that much. So I'd have just enough to maybe go buy a steak after I wrote my check out to CBC. It's all good, though. God provided the job. What was incredible is we got this opportunity. So my brother and I, we were the first to go work in, in, in Alaska with Hall in America, and they said, man, there's something about you guys. We like that you guys are Christian, they said, because you have good values. You guys aren't going out and getting drunk on the job. You show up on time. You do your job really well. We want to hire more people like you. That was a big compliment. That's awesome. I said, well, come to Central Bible College. Come and hire people at Central Bible College, and, and they'll work hard for you. And so Holland America did that. They came to Central Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. This is a company that goes out to these big universities and hires students. They came to little old Springfield, Missouri to conduct interviews with Central Bible College students, and they brought CBC students that year. Here's the problem, though. Not everybody they brought was a hard worker. Now, Christians should be, but not everybody who was hired worked hard, and not everybody who was hired took their job serious, and it was a terrible reflection of the God that we serve. They only did it for one year. The next year, they did not come back to Central Bible College and hire. Here's the truth. Today, you might love your job, you might hate your job, but either way, use it as a witness. Use it to preach Jesus. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your job is a, is a pulpit. Your job is a stage to make Jesus known. Do you view your job like that? And just for clarification, there's always an exception if your boss is telling you to break the law, if he's telling you to lie, cheat, steal, cut corners, then you say to him respectfully, my Christian conscience won't allow me to do that. I'm not telling you to go do something that Christ commands you not to do just to keep your job. You, you live according to your, your Christian conscience, and you live with the consequences. If you get fired for doing what's right, you get fired, and you trust God to take care of you. Look at the end of verse 19. It says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Some translations say this. It's a commendable thing when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. In other words, God's really pleased with, with that response. He gets, to the very, he gets to the motive here. Why you work. Why do you work? It's not just to get a paycheck. I know that's important. It's not just to make a living. That's important too. It's not just to provide for your family. That's important too. That's something that we need to do is provide for our families. 
all very important, but there's this, there's another level of motivation and that's, it's better than all the other ones and it's, we just looked at it, God is pleased. He's pleased. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God. Leads Peter to a second challenge and we'll end with this challenge. He says this, think big picture. Perspective is everything, isn't it? Think big picture. Look at verse 20 through 21. For what credit is it when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter asks a rhetorical question. He doesn't expect an answer. For what credit is it? If you do something wrong on the job and you get in trouble, that's not good. My boss is coming after me. Why is he coming after me? Well, I didn't show up on time. I didn't do what I was asked to do. That's not good. And you, you, you deserve the persecution at that point. That's not commendable. It's not praiseworthy. God isn't blessing you because you're dumb. But if you, you do what is right and you suffer for it and you don't gripe, you don't complain and you endure it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We have examples all throughout the Bible of people who practice this principle. Daniel is a prime example, right? He was accused by his peers of wrongdoing even though he did nothing wrong. Joseph was accused of doing things wrong. He was put in prison a couple different occasions by the lies of other people. He did nothing wrong. In fact, at the end of all that, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And some of you are thinking right now, but Pastor Justin, you don't know my job. You don't know what I have to go through. And here's what I'm going to say to you. You can have the right attitude, I promise. When you are treated unfair, you can still have the right attitude. How? By keeping the big picture in mind. Remember, God is with you even at the workplace. If you want to transform any job into a real joy, keep the bigger picture in mind. Remember, God is with you. God is with you. That changes the way that you conduct yourself, doesn't it? Knowing that God is with you in the workplace. Knowing that he's with you in the conference call. Knowing when he's with you in that, in that difficult meeting. God is with you. He's watching you. He's observing. It'll change the way that you conduct yourself at the workplace. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6 through 7 says, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that God is with you, you, have, you will have the right attitude. I might be saying this wrong. I'll end on this note. I probably am saying this wrong. I don't know how to pronounce this, but I know they're famous violins. The, the Stradivarius violins are known for not being cheap. They're very expensive. Any musicians in the house? We have any violinists? All right, a few. So if I'm saying it wrong, nobody will even know. <laughs> These are famous violins, though, because the, the owner, Antonio Stradivarius, believed that no instrument should leave his shop unless it was near perfect as humanly possible. And here's why. This is what he said. God needs violins to send his music into the world, and if any violins are defective, then God's music will be spoiled. Isn't that amazing? Do you know what he did to every worker in his factory who's, who got tired of their job? They started feeling like they had this mundane job, cutting and gluing wood together. He would elevate their task by saying this. You're doing this for God. This is God's music, and I want these to be God's instruments. Do it as you're doing it unto the Lord.
In verse 21, we'll end with this. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 21, Peter's going to say, this is your call. No more beating around the bush. This is your call. It's a part of your life. Part of your ministry as a Christian is to suffer. I've always said I love the 16 fundamental truths in the assemblies of God. I don't know why this isn't one of them. We should have 17 fundamental truths. And the 17th fundamental truth of the assemblies of God should be that part of our ministry as a Christian is to suffer. And any pastor that doesn't prepare their people for suffering, he's not really helping his people. Folks, we're not in heaven yet. You guys are going to have some really difficult days, some hard days. You're going to need Jesus on those bad days just as much as you're going to need Jesus on the good days. It's not that God always gets us around the valley of the shadow of death. It's that sometimes Jesus leads us through it. Okay, there are forces culturally, politically beyond your control, beyond our control. And as a result, we're not living in a culture or a nation that fully represents our values according to the word of God. There are certain ways we can't behave and as a result, we are going to experience a lot of pressure. We're going to experience pressure publicly, maybe even legally, maybe even physically and personally, economically, but we cannot conform. And as a result of this, we're going to suffer, and we're going to suffer unjustly. You're going to have things that are said about you, and those things are going to be wrong. It'll be wrong what's said about you. It'll be wrong what's done to you. But here Peter is saying that this, this can be a gracious thing, meaning that God has this hidden in it, this, this means of grace. I know this isn't popular. Well, this isn't what you want to hear, but three things your call to suffering does for you. And I, this is taken from Pastor Mark Driscoll. Number one is unjust suffering makes, makes us grateful for Jesus. What he says is Christ suffered and he left an example for you in suffering. How many of you, when you're suffering, you have this deeper appreciation of Jesus' suffering? God is in heaven, no suffering. Comes down to do what? He comes down to suffer. Why? Because he loves you. <laughs> Should give you a deep appreciation for Jesus. Most of the time our goal is to leave this world, get away from the suffering. Jesus' whole goal was to leave that world and enter into suffering for you and for me. Number two, unjust suffering allows you to be close to Jesus. This should be the motivation of our life. This, is, this should be the reason behind everything that we do. The Bible says we, we, we do not have a high priest who is an, unable to sympathize with us. Jesus says, man, I know what it's like when they say things that aren't true. I know what it's like to have people hate you. I know what it's like when a public mob just ultimately wrecks your reputation. I know what it's like even to have close friends betray you. I know what it's like when legally you're harassed. I know what it's like when they're trying to control you through fear, intimidation, and punishment. I know what it's like when you do what's right in the sight of God and, you're, and, and are judged in the sight of everyone else. And I'm so glad that in this world with all this suffering, I don't worship a God who is immune to it. But God, Jesus, has entered into it. He's experiencing it. He comes to be with me in my suffering. Somebody say amen. Pastor Skip Heidzik says, your prayer life is never better than when life hurts. You draw close to Jesus in those painful times. Number three, and this is it. I'll end with this. Suffering makes us like Jesus. 
Suffering makes us like Jesus. When you're suffering, the question is, how can I respond like Jesus respond? When you sense there's this injustice, how can you respond like Jesus would respond? And the question in the middle of all of it is to learn more about Jesus so you can become more like Jesus, so you can respond more like Jesus. And you wanna know why you do that? Because you're God's servant, we're God's servants. He's commissioned us on, on this mission to this world to serve his kingdom by carrying forth the character of his son. The only Jesus that some of these people in your workforce are gonna see is through you. That should be motivation enough to go to work every single day with this kind of attitude. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 10, it says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, this is Paul, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Church, listen to me today. His plan isn't that you just show up to work but that the job grows you, that the job shapes you. The job isn't just to satisfy you or supplement you, it's to shape you. Should be making you more like Jesus every day and in doing so, making Jesus more desirable to the world. That is our mission here on earth, come on. Father, we love you so much. I am so thankful for this church and these people. God, I am thankful for the jobs that they represent in this sanctuary today. I am so grateful that you have your missionaries strategically sent out and positioned in the workforce to be a light to you, to make you known to this world. That's what Peter's saying today. Take your job serious, work hard and think big picture. God, I pray that everybody in this room today would be a hard worker, would represent you well with the good bosses and the bad bosses. When they're treated unjustly and unfair, they would embrace your attitude and in doing so reflect the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. God, we would always think big picture. Big picture is Jesus is watching us. He's with us always. And there's a purpose behind everything, even a purpose behind pain. God, go with everyone this week. May your presence be with them. And may your presence be seen, felt, and experienced by all those in their sphere of influence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.